Well, over the summer months, we're working our way through the book of Colossians. Last week, as we introduced the book, we saw that the Apostle Paul is writing in this letter to a new church plant in the city of Colossae in modern-day Western Turkey. He's writing to this little new church plant and these new believers with one primary goal in mind. He writes to encourage them to press on towards maturity in their Christian lives. Last week, we worked through the first 14 verses, and we saw Paul's expression of thanksgiving for what he had heard that God was doing among them. We looked at his wonderful prayer that they would continue to bear fruit and mature in their knowledge of God. And now this morning, after that introduction, we are entering in, in verse 15, to the main body of the letter, where Paul confronts the Colossians with the most concentrated section of teaching on the majesty of Christ in the whole New Testament. And to get at what Paul is doing this morning in giving them this wonderful vision of the sovereignty of Christ, I want to show you on the screen a picture that I have in the wall of my study at home. Some of you have seen me uh, point, point to this before because I so appreciate this image. Hopefully you can see it uh, fairly clearly there. It's a lighthouse with a huge wave engulfing the bottom, and the lighthouse keeper is standing at the door uh, with that huge wave about to swell up over him. This is a famous photograph taken by the French photographer Jean Guichard. He, he has a special attention and focus on taking pictures of lighthouses, especially in storms. And Guichard went out in a helicopter on this day with his helicopter pilot, and they were flying around this famous lighthouse called La Jument, just off the coast of France in Brittany, in this storm. And the lighthouse keeper, Theodore Malgorn, heard the helicopter and came out to see what was going on. And Jean Guichard, the French philosopher, hit the jackpot because at the moment where Malgorn, the lighthouse keeper, stepped out to see what was going on with the helicopter, he didn't realize that this huge wave was about to engulf the bottom of the lighthouse. And this photographer, Guichard, took the picture that is now famous and has sold many, many copies all around the world. The lighthouse picture is called, uh, what is it, Les Fares dans la Tempête, which means the light in the storm. And it is such a beautiful image because I think we can resonate with us. At times, life feels like everything's about to overwhelm us. And yet the image of this lighthouse keeper standing there and then he was able to run in and get up into the lighthouse. And though the wave engulfed the bottom of the lighthouse, the lighthouse keeper was safe because he was able to run into that strong tower that was the lighthouse. And I think we can resonate with this idea that this is who Christ is for us as believers. The lighthouse keeper Theodore Malgorn commenting on this incident said, if I had been a little further away from the door, I would not have made it back into the tower and I would be dead today. You cannot play with the sea. 
You can take the image down there now, Dom. I show you that image because Paul, in this section of our letter, he wants the Colossians and us to see that Jesus is like that strong lighthouse tower for us. He is our light and life in the storms of life. We can find in him a place of security, a place where we can hide and find a shelter in the storm as we've been singing, a place where we can be safe in the face of all the waters of life that threaten to intimidate and overwhelm us in this world. Colossians 1, 15 to 23 is a vision of the mighty Christ given to strengthen and sustain our faith in a fallen and turbulent world. And let's admit it this morning, we all need this vision of the mighty Christ before us. In fact, what each of us need here this morning, more than anything else, is a greater and bigger vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need a vision of Jesus to give us stability, to help us battle our fears, to give us something solid in all the changing and uncertain days in front of us. And that is what I'm hoping you will take from this message this morning. As we look down at the section of the letter, this section is carefully composed and divided up into three sections. In verses 15 to 17 of chapter 1, we have the truth that Christ is supreme over all of creation. Then in verses 18 to 20, the truth that Christ is supreme over all of the new creation, the church. And then in verses 21 to 23, we see that Christ is our only stable and steadfast place of security in this fallen world. And when I use that word supreme or Christ has supremacy, I mean he is highest in rank and authority, most important, most powerful, the greatest. So let's get straight into the first couple of verses and what we're going to see is that Christ is, first of all, supreme over all of creation. And remember, these truths are given to stabilize us in all the waves that take shape in our lives and threaten to overwhelm us. So, Christ is supreme over all of creation. Paul makes four statements here in verses 15 to 17 that communicate to us the supremacy of Christ over all of creation. Statement one, Paul makes it clear, Jesus Christ is God. Flowing out of verses 13 and 14, Paul says in verse 15, He, that is the Son of God in whom we have redemption, He is the image of the invisible God. Down in verse 19, he says, In Him, in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In chapter 2, verse 9, he says, In Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. From all eternity, Jesus had in his very nature been the image of God, reflecting perfectly the nature, glory, and character of the Father. 
In the incarnation, when Christ took on flesh, the eternal Son took on humanity without losing any of his divinity, and in this way he became the visible image of the invisible God. So in John chapter 1, verse 18, John writes, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So the incarnation of Christ makes God known. The invisible God becomes visible in Christ. In Hebrews 1.3, we read, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. So there's something wonderful about this. When we read the Gospels and we see Jesus, we see the deepest revelation of the character and heart of our God. So when Christ gives time to rejected people in the Gospels, you're to see what God is like. When Christ touches the untouchables, the lepers, you see this is what God is like. When Christ gives dignity to women, you're to see this is what God is like. When Christ embraced children who were being shooed away by the others, you're to see this is what God is like. When Christ suffered on the cross, overthrew death, gives hope, you're to behold your God. He is the image of the invisible God. That is the first way Paul communicates the supremacy of Christ over all creation. He's God. The second way he does this is he shows us that this Christ is the author and ruler of creation. Paul continues, he's the firstborn over creation. For by him all things were created. Now, we have to be careful not to misunderstand this. This does not mean that Jesus Christ is the first created being. To understand the text in that way is to make a serious mistake, and it misunderstands the way this term firstborn is used in the Bible. The term firstborn literally means the first child to come from the womb. The firstborn son in ancient times had the rights of primogeniture. It means they were like the, the head over all their other siblings, like how the British monarchy works today. So Prince William is the firstborn of Prince Charles and Diana. And so Prince William has the right to rule because the monarchy works on the basis of primogeniture. In the Old Testament time, this term, firstborn, came to be used in a kind of technical way. You would speak of the firstborn and it communicated supremacy and authority over others. So in Psalm 89 verse 27, for example, God speaks of David, who was to become king. And remember, David was not the firstborn in his family line. In fact, he was the youngest. But God says of David, I will appoint him to be my firstborn, the most exalted of the kings of the earth. So you see, it was a technical term. It meant the firstborn, the most exalted, the highest, the ruler. And so when this is used of Jesus here in verse 15, 
it speaks of his absolute supremacy over all of creation. Then in verse 16, Paul gives the reason for why he can make such an exalted statement about Jesus. For by him, all things were created. This is how Christ stands as the ruler of all creation, because by him it was all created. Christ was so engaged in the work of creation with the Father, so essential to it, that nothing in creation was brought into existence independent of him. As the author of creation, he has all authority. The author has authority over creation. There's nothing outside of his authorial and authoritative rule. In case anyone at Colossae would have been tempted to say, well, surely there are some things that exist that are independent to Christ or not under his supreme authority. Paul says, no way. All things were created by him, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That always strikes me. God created invisible things. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, this means all angelic beings, good or fallen, all spiritual beings, all earthly authorities, good or evil, Christ has authority over them all in a wrestling match. There's no one who can defeat Jesus, no one, can, no one who can pin him down, no one who can make him tap out. Christ will always wrestle down everyone under his authority. So that's the second way Paul wants us to see the supremacy of Christ. He's God, he's the author and ruler of creation. Now thirdly, he moves on to say, all things were created for him. Verse 16, there are three little prepositions um, that I don't want you to miss. Actually, in verses 15 and 16. They are by, through, and for. By him, by Christ, all things were created. And then at the end of verse 16, all things were created through him and for him. All things created by him, through him, and for him. We've already addressed the by him and through him. What does it mean that all things are created for him? Well, it simply means that in some way, all things that exist, without exception, exist ultimately to display the glory and authority and majesty of Jesus Christ. It's hard to get your head around this, but in some way, everything that exists, exists to serve in some way to magnify Christ. So from the simplicity of the single-celled organism or the earthworm to the complex anatomy of the human hand, from the anglerfish at the bottom of the ocean to the albatross that soars across the skies, from the smallest pond to the mightiest oceans, from the billions of stars in the known universe to the gems hidden away in the deepest mines, even all fallen angels, all spiritual forces in the heavenly realms, all earthly dictators, all in the end will in some way serve to display the authority, supremacy, and greatness of Jesus over all. This includes you. You exist for him. You were created through him, by him, and your life, you were created 
put on this earth for him to serve and to point towards and to exalt his majesty. When the wee birds in the sky sing, praise their creator, they're doing what they were created for. Are you singing? Are you praising? Are you doing what you were made for to exalt and put on display and floodlight the majesty of Jesus Christ? That is the third thing Paul points to, to point to the supremacy of Christ. He is the one that all things were created for. And then fourthly, he says, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Jesus Christ as God depends on no one and nothing for his existence. But everything else that is in the category of created, Christ is in the category of uncreated, everything else is in the category of created, and everything in the category of created depends on Christ for its existence. Christ is not just the source of creation, not just sovereign over creation, he's a sustainer of creation. So the reason that we don't all just fall apart right now is because Christ actively holds us together. He holds the sun and the moon and the stars in place. He says to the waves of the sea, thus far and no farther, he holds you together, he holds me together. Whether you believe in him or not, you are absolutely dependent on Jesus for your life and every single part of it. And so I think this is helpful. For when you feel overwhelmed and feel like you can't cope, you can literally pray, Lord, hold me together because I feel like I'm falling apart. So here is in this first section four beautiful pointers that direct us to the supremacy of Christ over all of creation. But now in verses 18 to 21, the Apostle Paul moves and points to how Christ is supreme, not only over the first creation, but over the whole of the new creation. That is, the church. Paul now writes and says to the Colossians and indirectly to us, it is this glorious, mighty Christ who is your head, the one who is here to protect you in all your vulnerability and in your sense of weakness. This Christ is the strong tower who is here for you to give you stability in all the waves that threaten to overwhelm you. It's like he's saying, little vulnerable seedling church plant Colossians. As you fear, will, will the Roman Empire in the end stamp out the church? Well, Paul's saying, little vulnerable Colossians, this mighty Christ is your Christ. And no one and nothing in all the universe will ever stamp out Christ and his church. So Paul points to three further things now about Christ with respect to his supreme authority over the church, his new creation. First, he says he's the head of his body, the church. The church is so vitally united to this mighty Christ, like your body is united to your head. <laughs> we derive all life and grace and power and animation from this mighty Christ. He views us as part of himself. This is why he said to Saul on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He so identifies with his church and Saul's persecution of Christians that he could say, why are you persecuting me? 
He is the head of the body, the church. That means this is the mighty Christ and you derive all of your spiritual life from him. The second thing Paul points to is that he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. The beginning. What a statement. In a sense, this is kind of mind-blowing. We can say that this original creation that we are living in now is really only a prequel that leads to the true beginning. In Christ, God was inaugurating a new beginning, a fresh new creation, a creation not that would never be polluted by sin, death, separation from God. You think about it, all of the original creation had been subjected to decay and frustration through the fall. You think Adam is the head of the original creation and there was injected into him through his and Eve's rebellion sin and that infected the whole of the original creation. All creation in Adam experienced death. The first Adam brought death for all. But Jesus is a new Adam, a second Adam, a last Adam. He broke the grip that death had on everything when he demonstrated his absolute authority over death by his powerful resurrection. He is, as verse 18 says, the firstborn from the dead. That is the first to emerge out of this fallen realm of existence. He enters into it, protected from sin himself. He dies and rises and overthrows it all and stands as a new head, a new creation head. He stands as a pioneer of our new creation existence. And when Christ marched out of the grave, he brought with him millions and millions who could be saved and who would experience that resurrection power and new creation life. When you were born again, when you were united to Christ and saved by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, you were born again. What does that mean? You died to that line of polluted fallenness in Adam, and you're born into the, the line now where Christ is head, no pollution through sin, and you are righteous and holy in him. We taste the new creation now, but the fullness of it is all ahead of us. Christ is the firstborn from the dead. This is so encouraging. Death has authority over us by nature. But death does not have authority over this mighty Christ. He has the power to say, when we pass through death, death, get your dirty hands off this one, they are mine. You can't touch them. Yes, we will pass through death, physical death on this earth, but that physical death will never hold us down. Christ has put death under his feet. Death is the one that has been wrestled into submission by Christ. Death taps out and submits because of the mighty Christ. And all of this He's beginning the firstborn of the dead so that he might be displayed as the one who has preeminence. He is the greatest. So over the church, he's the head. He's the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. And then finally, Paul says, he is the one place where all things can be rightly reconciled to God. Find a right relationship with God again. Verse 20 does not mean, look at it 
Verse 20, through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This verse does not mean that all things in the universe will automatically be reconciled to God through the accomplishments of Christ. It means that all things that will in the end be reconciled to God will be reconciled to God only through Christ. The only way we can know peace and a right relationship with God is by being united to Christ by faith. We do not see everything in our world in subjection to the authority of Christ now, but there is a day coming when in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no rebellious elements left. All will be at peace with God, all because of this mighty Christ. So in the new heavens and earth, we will see all things that are part of that new heavens and new earth being fully reconciled, brought into a right relationship with God. No more groaning fallenness in creation. No more anxiety. No more depression. No more insecurities. No more lust. No more sexual immorality. No more materialism. No more pride. No more relational enmity. No more grief and separation because of death. For all those in Christ will be brought into a beautiful and full and perfect relationship with God and with one another. So, Paul has pointed so far to how this mighty Christ is head over the first creation. And then he has pointed to how this mighty Christ is head over the new creation. And now third and finally in the last section of our text, he shows how this mighty Christ is our stable and steadfast hope in this present age as we await the new heavens and new earth. In verse 21, Paul turns to the Colossian Christians after presenting this beautiful portrayal of the majesty of Christ, and he wants them to make sure that they know the stability that there is in Christ personally themselves. And so at this point, I want you to just to attention up. If you've sort of drifted a bit, just plug back in with me because... Paul gives this vision, God gives us this vision of Christ so that it's personal to each of us and so that we get the stabilizing benefits of this majestic portrait of Christ. And the first two words of verse 21 are just lovely. In the ESV, that translates very nicely the Greek, it just says, and you. So he turns all of this beautiful portrait of the majesty of Christ and he just says, right now, Let's think about you, Colossians, how this vision applies to you. You little, weak, fledgling Christians, and now to us, you little, weak, fledgling Christians at Great Vic, or at whatever stage you're at. And then Paul says, you once, remember this, you once were alienated and hostile in mind towards this mighty Christ doing evil deeds. You were so far away from this glorious Christ at one point. You were separated from God and hostile in your mind towards him. And then verse 22, he, the same mighty Christ, has now reconciled you in the body of his flesh through his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. 
This is so wonderful. This mighty Christ has worked for our benefit so that we can be presented as holy and blameless and above reproach. That is without shame as we stand before God. In chapter 2, verse 14, Paul's going to explain more fully how Christ did this. Through his death, he canceled our debt. He set it aside. He has made us holy and blameless and above reproach. And we need him to do this this work for us. Why? Well, in Proverbs 18.10, we read these words. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. The only way you can run into the strong tower, the lighthouse that is Christ, is if you qualify as righteous. And we know in light of the New Testament teaching that the only way we can truly be declared righteous before God is by being united to Christ by faith. So you imagine if you were in that lighthouse, or you were standing at the bottom of that lighthouse, and the wave was about to overwhelm the bottom of the lighthouse, and your only hope was to run into the lighthouse and you'd be saved. But imagine the door was barred to you. And you went to run in to be saved, and you were like, I can't get in, I can't get in, I can't get in. And boom, the wave overwhelms you and you die. That is a picture of what will happen to everyone in death outside of Christ. The door of safety and security and refuge from the overwhelming wrath of God, it will be shut to you. And you will be overwhelmed with the wrath and judgment of God. Think about that. The door will be shut if you do not have the righteousness of Christ as your own righteousness. But if you are in Christ, the door is open. He says, I am the door. And so you stand there at the bottom of the lighthouse and you imagine you're about to stand before the judgment of a holy God. And what do you do? My only hope is to run into Christ. And you run into Christ because you're in Christ and the wrath of God cannot touch you. All the judgments, all the wrath is completely taken away. There's not a drop of wrath or displeasure towards you because of the saving benefits of Christ. And you're safe. Safe in life, safe in death. And Paul is presenting this sovereign vision of the mighty Christ to the Colossians so that they will see this is the one in whom you have stability. This is the one in whom you have hope. This is the one who saves you and gives you life. And look at what he says then in verse 23. He's all this for you, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Now, as we continue through this letter, we're going to learn and see that there were various currents in and around the city of Colossae that threatened to pull the Colossian Christians away from Christ. 
It's called the Colossian heresy or the false teaching, and loads of commentators speculate what it was and what it specifically was. All we know is that there were loads of things like modern currents of opinion or false teaching that might have said, yeah, yeah, you have Christ, but you need Christ plus this, this, and this. And Paul knew that those little vulnerable Christians could get pulled away from their absolute confidence in the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ. So he straight away presents them in this letter with the glory and majesty of Christ. And in verse 23, when he says, if you continue, he's basically saying, here's the stable one, the mighty Christ. Why would you ever want to drift away from him? Why would you ever want to to ignore him, swim away from him, or think that you could find anything of worth outside of him? That's what this is here to do. Paul's saying to them and to us, stick with this mighty Christ. Don't drift away from him as if you don't need him. You don't need to add anything to him. Christ is enough. He is your solid rock in a tempestuous and difficult world. Keep looking to him, for in him is everything you need. Whatever you're facing that makes you afraid this morning, what you need more than anything to help you with that fear is you need a bigger appreciation of who Jesus is for you. There are so many things this morning that could cause us fear and anxiety. Just think about what we see at the moment in the world around us. The present world affairs, conflicts and unrest, soaring costs of living. You might have personally your own stresses, family stresses, relational stresses, work stresses or health issues. You might be looking out into the future and be concerned about the state of the world. You might have concerns for your children or grandchildren and the kind of world they're growing up into. You might have concerns about all the rapid changes going on in your life. Or as you get older, you sort of feel like, what's going to happen when I'm gone? Will everything fall apart when I'm not there to keep it all in line? We can start to think this way, even for our church. What will happen as we continue to grow and move through changes? What will happen with our building project in the future? Well, in the midst of all of these uncertainties, all of these unknowns that can cause fear to rise in our hearts, this passage is here to say, behold your mighty Christ. In all the threatening tides and storms and uncertainty, he's your rock. In all of the changing and uncertain circumstances, here is the unchanging, solid God. I find that so encouraging. In all the stuff I don't know about the future, in all the stuff that's going up and down, here's one thing I do know for certain. Christ will not change. He will be a rock of continuity in all of the changes. Whatever happens, he's the one who holds Great Vic together. He's the one who holds this world together. He's the one who will be there as a solid rock for you and your children and your grandchildren after you. Christ has got the world in his hands. You don't have to stress about it. In the midst of all of the changes, all the grief that overwhelms you and you fear for your future, how you're going to get on, here is Christ, the rock who never changes, always here for you. Stable, steady, the door open to run into him so that when the waves threaten 
and create anxiety, you have somewhere steady and solid to stand. This is what this passage is given to tell us. We have one who is stable and steadfast. And if we keep looking to him, we will never be overwhelmed ultimately by everything in this life and everything in the life to come. Nothing can ultimately overwhelm us because we are safe in this mighty Christ. He's the hope of all creation. He's the hope of the new creation. He is the strong tower we can run into and be safe. He is our light in the tempest. Our mighty Christ. And here's what is so good about this. No wave will overwhelm him ever. And if you're hidden in him, you'll be safe. How reassuring is this. So, in light of all of this, let me just ask you, why do you let yourself drift away from this mighty Christ? Why would you drift away as if you can get by in life by yourself? Why would you ignore the glory of this mighty Christ? Why would you just take him for granted and and, and ignore him in your day-to-day life? Why would you do that? Or if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, why would you stand outside of Christ and and be threatened by the waves of the judgment of God? Do you know this mighty Christ personally? If Paul turned to you and said, and you, here's the Christ, now you, Are you in him? Do you know him? Has he reconciled you to God and made peace through his death in your life? If not, you must turn to this Christ. You must be born again. You must run into him this morning. You must. Not tomorrow. Not even five minutes from now. You must now put your hope in this mighty Christ. For in him alone is the strength and stability you need. Let's pray. Father, we think of the image of that lighthouse and the keeper standing there at the bottom and how at times we feel in life like the waves are overwhelming us. And yet, thank you, Father, that as that lighthouse keeper ran into that tower and was saved, thank you that by running into Christ, we are saved. And even then in Christ, as we look out even in this week ahead at certain things that make us nervous, changes and uncertainties, future uncertainties, here we're, we're given this vision, here's the strong one, here's the stable one. No matter what happens this week, he won't change. He is all of this strength and stability for you. And Father, that helps us so much when we are worried about the things that are ahead of us or the world that our children, our grandchildren are growing up into. Thank you, Father, so much that your Son ultimately is supreme over it all. And we do pray for our children and our grandchildren and their children after them. Lord, as long as you will tarry, we want to pray for you to save them, that our children and our grandchildren and and our families and our friends around us and our colleagues at work, we pray that more and more people in these days would come and take their shelter and refuge in the mighty Christ. Oh, Lord, save our children, save our grandchildren, save 
Everyone in here this morning, if there are people here that don't know you, work on them even now, Lord, and touch their hearts so that we would come into the refuge and care of this mighty Christ. And if we have backslidden and we've been falling away and drifted away, may that reminder of Paul's this morning, if you continue in him, steadfast, stable, and I just pray, Lord, that that would awaken us and we need to realize we need to get back into Christ. We need to get back near to him and and draw all of our strength and stability from him. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for how you work in our lives through it. And I just pray that the seed of your word this morning would rest well in the hearts of your people, giving them strength and stability for all that's ahead. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond by standing together to sing, My hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Through the storm, he is Lord of all. Let's stand and praise God together.
Thank you for that beautiful truth that in the end, in Christ, we'll be dressed in his righteousness. And that that door will never be barred for those in Christ. For we are righteous in him and we can run into him, our strong tower, and be saved. Father, take this truth and stir us again through it this morning, we pray. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all in Christ our Lord.